turn with me to today's passage. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. What we find here is one of the most beautiful accounts in all of literature, but far more significant than its beauty is the truth that we find here because this passage covers the miraculous entrance of Christ into the realm in which we live, the human realm, which was an important event in the great unfolding of God's eternal plan of redemption. Of course, the coming of Christ is not just found in a passage like this in the New Testament. It is found in many Old Testament prophecies that point to it. I don't have time to give you all of those. I would like to call your attention to one that we find at the very beginning of human history in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, This is a verse that occurs after Satan took the form of a serpent, you know, in the Garden of Eden, and then he tempted uh, the first uh, humans, uh, Adam and Eve, into sin against God. And once they sinned, once Adam sinned, that plunged the whole human race into sin. After that, God spoke to Satan. And this is what he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. We refer to this sometimes as the first preaching of the gospel, the first declaration of the gospel message in the Bible. It is a prophecy about one of Eve's descendants who would come, but more importantly, the prophecy included another woman as well, a future woman, some woman whose offspring would then literally be the ultimate seed who would defeat the serpent. Many centuries later, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Galatians 4 verse 4. This is after the fact. In other words, after the seed had been born to that future woman, he wrote this, Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. As we will see this morning, Jesus was that ultimate and unique seed that was prophesied, and he was indeed born of a woman. Now, before we look at our text this morning, starting at verse 26, I do need to set the context just a bit. In the verses preceding our passage, the verses leading up to our passage, we find the account of the angel informing a couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth that they would bear a son named John. It was a miraculous thing that would happen because they were quite old. Now, the John that was born to them is the John that we know as John the Baptist. He was the one chosen to be the forerunner of the Messiah or the herald of the coming Messiah, that ultimate seed. So in today's passage now, we move from the prediction of the birth of the herald, the forerunner, to the prediction of the birth of the one that he was heralding, the Messiah himself. Now, starting at verse 26 through verse 38, this account breaks down into four sections. Here's number one for us today. Number one, the unexpected visitor. The unexpected visitor. 
verse 26 reads, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now that reference to the sixth month links this story to that previous passage I just explained to you about Zacharias and Elizabeth. In other words, what we're now studying occurred in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's a link to the previous passage. Another link to the previous passage is that the angel that's mentioned here, Gabriel, is the same angel that predicted the birth of John the Baptist. And notice that Gabriel was not acting uh, on his own initiative. It says clearly he was sent. Uh, With that verb, uh, we find that he was obeying God's commission. In other words, God had given Gabriel the directive to go to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The very fact that Nazareth uh, had to be Uh, said to be in Galilee here in the verse lets you know just how insignificant that village was that the author would have to tell you what region it was in. Well, this town, Nazareth, is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. It was just an insignificant uh, village, really, and a place of uh, overall poverty. Archaeological excavations in that area indicate that Uh, This uh, was uh, a hamlet of earthen dwellings, simple earthen earthen dwellings that was cut into 60 acres of a rocky hillside with a total population, according to excavations, we predict about 500 people, and that was it. An insignificant village, which is why many Jews held Nazareth in scorn, and they actually mocked it. You may remember this from John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Philip had crossed paths with the Lord, and then he went and found Nathanael. And it says that he told Nathanael this in John 1. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael said back to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's the village, Nazareth. So what a contrast we have here now in Luke 1, the angelic appearance to Zacharias and Elizabeth. If you took time to read through that account, that angelic appearance occurred in Jerusalem, a large city, the very center of of Jewish culture, Israelite culture. This angelic appearance took place in this obscure Galilean village. And here's another contrast. That first angelic appearance was to Zacharias, a respected priest. Even while he was performing his duties in the temple, this second appearance is to someone quite different. Verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, the Greek term for virgin here literally means a young, unmarried woman, But its usage in several passages, not only in the New Testament, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, confirms that the term uh, carries with it the implication of virginity. Now, we don't know the specific age of this particular woman. In that culture, a woman that's called this would be commonly either as young as 12 or maybe up to 18 or 19. 
We do know, though, something more specific, and that was she was engaged. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was from that same obscure village. In fact, he was a Jewish uh, village carpenter, a bit older than the young woman, very likely. Now, in that culture, engagement was something different than what we are familiar with here. It was something far more binding than what we call engagement. When a man and woman announced their engagement, their respective families would uh, have already agreed by that time, by the time of announcements, the two families would have agreed upon a contract which would have included a bridal price, and then there would be the public announcement. And during then, this time of engagement, which would usually last about a year, people would go ahead and start calling the man the husband, and they would call the woman the wife, even though there would be no intimate physical relations during that engagement period. They would not be living together. So if there was unfaithfulness on the part of the bride during that year, she was potentially punished with death. But even if she wasn't killed, if the engagement was at least called off because of that, a divorce was actually required to break the engagement. That's how binding it was. On the other hand, if there, there was no unfaithfulness and if the year of the engagement would, uh, was completed, there would then be the official wedding. That would include a great wedding feast, after which the woman would then move in with the man and physical re- relations would then begin. So in our text, we have this young woman who's a virgin, a young virgin, and a man, Joseph, who were in that one-year engagement period. The marriage feast hadn't happened. The element of living together had not taken place, and therefore there had been no physical relations yet. Not for this couple. Well, the text notes that Joseph was of the descendants of David. Literally, it's of the house or of the household of David, and that's an important fact that will play a role in this woman's mind, as we'll see in a moment. Then in verse 27, we finally come to the woman's name, and the virgin name was Mary. That was a common name in their culture. There were lots of women named Mary. It is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name, Miriam. Verse 28 says, and coming in, meaning the angel, he said something to her. Now, stop there for a moment. When that same angel came to Zacharias, if you read the account of that appearance, it's clear that that angel just suddenly and miraculously appeared in Zacharias' presence. That's not the language that's used here. In this case, the language refers to something that was not supernatural. In other words, Gabriel essentially knocked on the door. Or rang the doorbell. And then Mary, once she checked the ring camera, the porch camera, to see who it was or whatever she had, Mary then let this figure in. And this unexpected visitor had a very special message for Mary. Verse 28, greetings, favored one. Greetings was a common uh, greeting, the word uh, in that day. 
in that culture, it is equivalent to the Old Testament greeting, shalom. But the next expression is far more significant. Gabriel referred to Mary as being the favored one. Now, that term refers to God's sovereign bestowal of grace upon someone. In other words, Mary had not earned this favor. It was the result of an act of God's wonderful sovereign grace. Now, unfortunately, just a little note of church history here, unfortunately, Jerome's translation, his Latin version of this called the Vulgate, reads something a little different here. He translated this into Latin so that it says this, that Mary was full of grace. That is a very unfortunate translation. It's not accurate, and it has definitely been wrongly interpreted then by Roman Catholicism as if Gabriel was saying, Mary, you are filled with grace yourself, which is at your disposal then to bestow on others. That is not the intended meaning at all. Instead, the true sense is something more like this. Mary, you are the one who has received grace from God. And that's confirmed even by the following statement, verse 28, the Lord is with you. Now, some manuscripts also at this point do add a little statement here to the greeting that says, blessed are you among women. That is not in the best manuscripts. It very likely was something inserted by copyists later. They borrowed it from chapter 1, verse 42. If you look ahead, you see it there, sort of stuck it in here. So blessed are you among women is not there. Uh, Full of grace is certainly not not a good translation, but she was favored. She received grace from God. God was gracious to her. The Lord would be with her. That's a very encouraging statement. And the point of that is this whole greeting even is that Mary had been chosen for uh, an incredible task. And there's no suggestion of of any worthiness on her part, even though we will see uh, as we go on that certainly she was a very godly young woman. She was a humble young woman. But the idea is what the Lord would accomplish through her based on the fact that the Lord would be with her to enable her to fulfill this task. Well, how'd she respond? Not surprisingly, she was very startled, verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement. Now, that term perplexed means that she was troubled throughout her being, but notice what she was troubled at. It wasn't the appearance of this angel. It was not being troubled over what she saw. She was perplexed over what was said that God was choosing someone so unlikely and unimportant as her. That really is a glimpse into this young woman's character, into her humility. She knew who she was. She knew she was only a a, a young woman of low social position, and therefore she could not understand how it would be possible for someone like her to even be addressed with such lofty terms like this angel was using. It shocked her to the point that verse 29 says she just kept pondering what kind of salutation this was, what he had said to her. 
Well, Gabriel reassures her in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. Gabriel is just assuring her of the work to which God was calling her and assuring her that God would accomplish it. There's the unexpected messenger. Number two, the amazing declaration, the amazing declaration. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. I mean, that's something that seems totally impossible. Virgins do not give birth. But it was so sure to happen with this virgin and this birth that God had already chosen the name of the child. Verse 31, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now that Greek name Jesus corresponds to the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus' very name was a constant reminder to why he even came to earth. And when the angel made the announcement to Joseph that all this would happen, you'll remember there's that great statement in Matthew 1, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Verse 32, he will be great. Not just great because what others would think of him, The way this is worded is that he would be great just in and of himself. He is great. And the next phrase gives even fuller meaning to his greatness. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That verb called means that there was a divine action that took place. This was a title that was assigned to this child by God himself. And the title, Son of the Most High, is one that indicates his true being. The child would be called this because that's who he is. He would be majestic and sovereign and set apart from all others, just like God is. In fact, that term great, that he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, that term great is the equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew term El Elyon, which was a name used of God himself to emphasize his majesty and supremacy over all things. The angel was telling her, he'll be great, El Elyon, that greatness, and be called the son of the most high. And that's not all, verse 32, and the Lord will, God will give him the throne of his father David Now, that was something that definitely would have, all of this would have caused Mary to be alert and and just pondering what's going on, trying to absorb it. But this part as well, because this relates to a very important promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God says this, when your days are complete to David... I will raise up your descendant after you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is a prophecy, and like many prophecies, there was an immediate fulfillment, but there was also a a far fulfillment meant in it. The immediate fulfillment was the birth of Solomon, and a kingdom was formed. But God also had another descendant in mind with his covenant. This was looking far beyond just Solomon, the next son born to David. And we know that because of verse 16 in 2 Samuel 7. 
Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. That is a prophecy about the Messiah, the one they longed for, the one they anticipated coming someday. The Messiah would be a king who would come from David's line and would sit on the throne of David. So here's the point in our passage. It was this same covenant made with David that Gabriel was referring to in that announcement to Mary. This child, Mary, is that one, the Messiah, the one who would ascend the very throne of David. And again, that's confirmed by the angel's next statement, verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, I wish I had the time to take you back to Isaiah chapter 9 and the wonderful prophecy that's there. We sing about it at Christmas. His name will be Wonderful Savior, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, all of that. There's a lot of terms in that passage in Isaiah 9 that actually pop up in our passage today. But I will refer to you you Isaiah 9 verse 7. Listen to this. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then and forevermore. Mary was familiar with this. She understands what this was a reference to. Fast forward just a bit when Jesus came and he began to preach. This was part of the, his content, the kingdom Here's an example, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he preached that about the kingdom. And that kingly rule would would be expressed in the heart of each person who who would repent and believe, who would trust in Christ for salvation and follow him as the Lord of their life. That kingdom would be expressed in the rule of their heart, over their heart, but its ultimate outward manifestation would still be a kingdom that he establishes upon his future return to earth and then goes forward into eternity as well in the new heaven and new earth. So back to our text. The main point is that the prophecy found in 2 Samuel 7 has its ultimate fulfillment in this child. Jesus. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. No doubt her heart was filled with wonder. I mean, the first fact was staggering enough that she, as a virgin, would become a mother. But to learn of the greatness of the one that she would bear must have been even more staggering to her. Possibly her mind was not only taking back to 2 Samuel 7 based on what the angel said. But very possibly, her mind was taken back to Genesis 3.15, that verse I read earlier today. She was familiar with not only the Davidic covenant, this was a godly young woman who was familiar with Genesis as well. The promise of that seed, a promise of a seed that would come from the woman. Imagine that going through her mind, processing that. Perhaps her mind was then taken forward to the end of time that her son would sit upon the throne of David and reign forever. 
As one author said, the entire program of the Messiah may have flashed across her mind in those few words. She was going to be the mother of the long-awaited deliverer. Well, Mary believed what the angel told her, but she couldn't understand how this was physically possible, which brings us to number three, the divine intervention, the divine intervention. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, the original Greek literally reads, since I am not knowing a man. The idea of knowing a man is what you find in the Old Testament, uh, the term know uh, being used in a Hebrew sort of roundabout way of graciously implying physical intimacy. Find it more than one place. Here's one example, Genesis 19, verse 8. When Lot was in Sodom and those angels appeared there to him, Genesis 19, verse 8, he told them, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. That's what he said to the people. I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Here was this scene of judgment that was going to be, we know, that was about to happen. And these angelic visitors were going to uh, explain to Lot that he had to leave, but the people of the city were sinful people. When he said, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man, it literally is two daughters who have not known a man. There's that concept. So Mary was not perplexed over the fact of the conception. It was just the how, the way the conception was going to happen. So Gabriel answers her with an explanation, and it's amazing how reserved it is. It's amazing how uh, obviously reverent it is in the terms he uses. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Those terms are important, coming upon, overshadowing. It's the conception, the idea that the conception would result from miraculous divine action. And both those ideas, the coming upon and the overshadowing, are related in thought to something in the Old Testament. And that's the Shekinah glory of God, which represented God's presence, that cloud. The glory was seen in that cloud resting on the tabernacle or overshadowing the tabernacle, and as well, we know, in the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a reference to that, Exodus 40, verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it. It's the same thing as overshadowed it, come upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God chose to materialize, and you could say He chose to localize this expression of Himself, His glory, within a particular time and a particular place in the tabernacle. Well, the point in our text is that the divine cloud in the Old Testament that established God's presence in a place would now accomplish that in a person. I like what the commentator Barclay says. The divine overshadowing of the earthly tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the living tabernacle, the incarnation of Jesus. 
This should make us think about what the Apostle John said in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. What a reference here this is. The divine cloud that represented God's presence. You'll remember it even guided the nation of Israel in the wilderness, went before them. It infused the tabernacle. Now it completes the drama of salvation by actively infusing Mary's womb with Jesus, the Son of God. Gabriel gives the only possible conclusion about a child conceived this way, verse 35. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph. Joseph had nothing to do with this, but the Son of God, which is another way of clearly saying he is divine. But know something important. Jesus did not become the Son of God. It doesn't say that he would become the Son of God in the incarnation or even the birth at Bethlehem. The Scriptures teach that He was the Son, the eternal Son, before He was sent. That's the idea of being sent. 1 John 4, verse 14, the Father has sent the Son, not the one who would become the Son. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God did not send the second person of the Godhead and then proclaim him to be the son. That's who he is. So what a task Mary was given to perform here, a task that would leave her open to false charges, criticism, accusations. Therefore, God instructed the angel to give Mary some encouragement here. He does it a couple of different ways. He informs Mary of the one person who would understand the miraculous nature of all that was happening, all that God was doing, verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. I mean, that was surprising to Mary, but encouraging. She knew that was another miraculous act of God, and she is pregnant in her old age. That would encourage her. By the way, the term for old age is uh, geros, where we get our word geriatrics from. Well, the point here is, since it was a miracle that this could happen to people well advanced in years, Mary would be encouraged and strengthened in her faith by sharing all of this with Elizabeth and hearing the news from Elizabeth and so forth. But the ultimate encouragement for Mary would be just the reality of God's own power which Gabriel confirmed, verse 37. Even more encouragement. For nothing will be impossible with God. This is the omnipotence of God. The omnipotence of God, of course, is taught throughout Scripture in many passages. Some of the most obvious ones to me are Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, nothing is too difficult for you, God. Daniel 4, 35, he does according to his will in the host of heaven, and no one can ward off his hand. That's God. He's omnipotent. Nothing's impossible for him. So it was by his power 
that God intervened miraculously to bring about this miraculous conception of the Son of God in Mary's womb. It's Mary's response to all of this now that really reveals her character. That brings us to number four. We've seen the unexpected messenger, the amazing declaration, the divine intervention, and now number four, the humble response. The humble response. In humility, she embraced this task. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. I mean, Gabriel had said she was favored, highly favored among women. Mary saw herself differently than that. In fact, this term bond slave is what many of you would expect. It's from that doulos word group in Greek that means slave. That's what she's saying. Behold, here I am, the slave of the Lord. What a statement of submission. And that submission is reinforced in her next declaration. May it be done to me according to your word. Done to me according to your word. This is complete surrender on Mary's part. Surrendering herself completely to be obedient to God's will. Whatever God wanted to do. Even though God's will in this case could mean all of that painful criticism and false accusations and ostracism, ridicule. Mary recognized the will of God and embraced it. You know what she's basically saying? Not my will, but yours be done. Does that ring a bell with you? Years later, this very son would be in deep distress on the Mount of Olives the night before the crucifixion. And there, this son, the one being prophesied, would pray in words very close to His mother's words here, he would pray to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Then verse 38 says, at that point, the angel departed. I'm assuming departed the same way he came. Well, I want to just draw your attention as we close to some important concluding thoughts for us to ponder in our hearts as we go forward. What's important that we can draw out of this passage more than what I'm about to summarize for you, but certainly in my own heart, these were encouraging for me to ponder and to see their importance. First of all, the importance of sovereignty, the importance of sovereignty, God's sovereignty that, that comes up all the time in sermons in, our, in the Word of God. Sovereignty in what way? Well, His eternal plan of redemption that He formed in His own eternal mind Everything that needed to happen to bring that to pass throughout the centuries, God, by His omnipotent power, brought to pass. And nothing could thwart it. Satan more than once tried to throw off this plan, and he couldn't do it. And when you get to this step, this miraculous conception, God had the power in His sovereign power to bring it to pass, and nothing would stop it. And this was very necessary for God to performed this sovereign act because this one who's the deliverer needed to be both God and man. He needed to be divine so that he can represent God to man and to know God, to represent that God to man. And he needed to be man to represent man to God and to taste of all that man experiences yet without sin. 
this perfect God-man, God in his sovereignty brought it to pass. It just reminds us that in his sovereignty, you find sometimes mysterious ways. We can't always connect the dots. Even things we read in Scripture of, of the why God does things the way he does sometimes. But in his sovereignty, he is perfect in his wisdom as he fleshes all those things out. And that's true still today. It doesn't matter how we see things in the world going on around us. Don't try to connect all the dots just based upon human reasoning. Remember the sovereignty of God. He's working out his will, his sovereign will by his power. And regardless of how strong the enemy seems at times, this statement is still true, still true that nothing is impossible for God. We see the importance of sovereignty here in resting in that and taking comfort in that. We see the importance of sanctification in this passage. How? We see it in the example of Mary, a godly woman. This is what God expects of His children, of His people, to live sanctified lives, to grow in our sanctification. She was a young woman, and yet she was one who models virtues to us. Don't get me wrong, we don't venerate Mary a great, grave error of Roman Catholicism, worshiping Mary. The very heart of Catholicism is Mariolatry. No, we don't venerate her, but she is a good example to us of what it means to to be sanctified, to, to live a holy life unto the Lord, a life that pleases Him. What does she model? She models a proper view of integrity. Start with that. I mean, the fact that Mary was a virgin indicates that she was committed to discipline in her life, personal holiness. She was committed to not compromising, especially in the arena of sexuality. We certainly need that kind of integrity today. Just remember, integrity, any kind of integrity, starts with who you are in the eyes of God, totally out of the sight of others. We ought to pursue integrity, even this integrity. And if someone has failed in this way, then they should know this, that it's never too late to start doing them what is right. She models that virtue. She models a proper view of self. As we grow in our sanctification, living a life that pleases the Lord, it's going to be a a right view of self that's mixed in there, not a high view of self, a proper view of self. And that comes from a high view of God. Mary had a high view of God. And it is a high view of God that leads to a proper and humble view of self. Those who get so angry and so hurt and so offended are living their lives focused on themselves. Mary was not like that. That's having a high view of self. We need to hear and heed Paul's admonition in Romans 12 verse 3. He says it clearly, I say to every person among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. God loves humility. And Mary's a good example of that. That's that's evidence of growth and sanctification as you grow, as we grow in our proper view of self because of a high view of God and we grow in humility. A proper view of submission, she models that. I mean, to grow in sanctification, a a life that pleases the Lord is we're growing in what it means to obey Him and to do His will. And Mary was not passively just resigned to that. She was actively, as she heard all this, desiring to do God's will. Here I am, a slave of the Lord. 
what a model and example she is for that. And she certainly models a proper view of trust in God. That's another thing. The more we grow in our sanctification, the more we're going to grow in what it means to trust God. Think about it. Gabriel, neither Gabriel nor God demanded Mary to, that she understand every aspect of what was being said. What required, was required of her was only this, that she trust God and willingly submit to him. That's what trusting God means. It means committing your way to the Lord, knowing that he will do whatever's best and that he always fulfills his promises. He does it at his own time. And he does it in his own way. But we can trust him for that. So Mary, this one chosen to bear and give birth to the King of kings and Lord of lords. From a human perspective, she was not somebody important. From a human perspective, she didn't bring any incredible credentials you know, to, to the task. She brought nothing on her resume, we could say other than her faithfulness, holiness, availability, humility, willingness to serve. But those are the characteristics that are the most basic ones that any one of us can offer God. Bottom line is, to be a hero of the faith, you don't have to be famous. You just need to be faithful. Just be godly in how you quietly live your life each day, in your home, in front of your spouse or your children or the eyes of your neighbors or in front of your employer, fellow employees, manifesting holiness, the fruit of the Spirit in those contexts. You may never be famous, but you're a hero of the faith, regardless of whether you're ever known outside those contexts, regardless of whether you ever amass a a great fortune and write a bestseller or anything like that. Spiritual greatness is a function of the heart. Remember what God said in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Listen, this is sanctification. We come to Christ, but it's coming to follow Him, and it's coming to serve Him, And to grow in what it means to do that and to grow in our knowledge of Him and to grow in our knowledge of truth, of who God is and His ways and His character and what it means to live a life that pleases Him. We see the importance of even sanctification in this passage. And lastly, we see the importance of God's grace. God is a gracious God. He doesn't favor people because of their inherent worthiness something on their own. No, he's a God of grace, and grace can be defined as giving someone what they do not deserve. And that reality is manifested in Mary in this passage, but not just in her example. I could take you to the Apostle Paul. He clearly understood this. With all his giftedness, he still understood this. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He knew he was a recipient of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. God's grace is not even just a New Testament idea. We, we see it clearly in the account of God's choice of Abraham. Go all the way back to that. 
Abraham, chosen to be the beginning of of an entirely new nation. Who was Abraham? A complete pagan, worshiping pagan gods. And God, according to his own sovereign decrees, crashed into Abraham's life and chose him to be the father of God's special nation, Israel. Listen, you could say that about Abraham. The entire nation of Israel are pictures, trophies of God's sovereign grace. Let's apply it more personally. The reality is that every person who ever comes to follow this Savior, whoever comes to follow Christ for salvation, salvation from their sins, are picturing the same sovereign grace of God. Listen to a few verses. Acts 15, 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Romans 3, 24. We are justified as a gift by His grace. Romans 6, 14. You are not under law, but under grace. Ephesians 1, verse 6. Everything that God does related to, to salvation, it says, is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, spiritually dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's another way of saying for the ages to come, those who follow him would be trophies of his grace putting his grace on display, and then those great words, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. If you are here and you've come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a trophy of his grace. Take comfort in that. It wasn't anything about you. You could never merit it. You couldn't earn it. But if you're not a follower of Christ... Just a word to you, if you're sitting here and you have a desire to know this salvation that's found in Christ, if if you have a desire in your heart that you, you know you're a sinner, there's conviction of sin, and you want forgiveness of sin, and you want to to turn to Christ to be saved, that is the gracious work of God by His Spirit compelling you to come to Christ in repentance and faith, you need to respond to that. In your own heart, you need to give yourself fully to Him. Let's pray. Father, what a a glorious account of what you accomplished. We're so encouraged by it as we think about your sovereign redemptive plan that you formed in your eternal mind and how you did everything that was necessary according to your perfect wisdom, knowledge, and power to bring about every element of the plan, including the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of this godly young woman. This season, Lord, may we marvel over that even more. May we not forget about it as we get caught up in the busyness of the season. May we marvel over the incarnation, even as we think ahead to marveling over the birth as well. 
Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We take comfort in it in our own personal lives, knowing that everything happens is still part of that wise plan that you, by your power, are working out. We thank you that we were not just called to you as sinners to be saved, but you work in our hearts to sanctify us, to help us to grow. We all can grow to exhibit more of these virtues in our lives. Thank you for that reality. We thank you most of all that you're a God of grace, that you save sinners by your grace, you sanctify sinners, your people by your grace. We thank you for that and we rest in it. In our Savior's name, amen.